remember being uh, six or seven, and I'm seated on a pew with my parents. Uh, you could say I was seated on a pew with my parents. Actually, I was as far away from them as I could be and still be seated on the same pew. They were on one end, and I was on the other. It was probably because I wanted to be away from where my mom could pinch me if I was talking or, you know, looking funny or whatever. And on this particular uh, Sunday night, as I was sitting there on the church pew, um, I noticed something that I hadn't really noticed before. It looked like this. And it was at the front of our church, and it was some silver towers, and they were there on the table in front of where the, the preacher was preaching. And um, it, it, my kid curiosity, you know, was just going crazy. I was wondering, what, what is this? What's going on up there? What are those shiny things at the front of the church, you know? What's going to happen? Like, what are you going to open up, and what's going to be inside, you know? And so, like, from that moment on, the whole rest of the service, my eyes are just transfixed on these silver things at the front of the church. And maybe it was because these things had got my attention, or maybe the Holy Spirit was just doing something in my life and was about to reveal something really cool to me. Whatever reason, for the first time in my life, I was listening to what the preacher had to say. And I was like, wow. Because he was talking about Jesus. And not that that was weird. He talked about Jesus every week. But this week, he was talking about Jesus' death. He talked about how Jesus gathered together with his closest friends and had a meal. He talked about how they walked into a garden to pray. He talked about how there in the garden alone, Jesus prayed so hard that sweat came out and blood ran out of his sweat pores. You know, And at that point, I'm in, man. Like, what? He talked about how soldiers arrested Jesus in the night. He talked about how Jesus was mocked and made fun of and beaten. They talked about how um, they took a crown from a thorn bush and pushed it into his head. And then he talked about the whipping. And the way that preacher described how they mercilessly beat Jesus, it was the most gripping story I'd ever heard. Like the most gripping thing I'd ever heard. And it continued. Next, he talked about Jesus carrying his cross out to a place where they would kill him. Sure, I'd seen pictures of Jesus. I, I had a lot of crosses around. I'd seen a lot of crosses. But for now, for the first time, like it was alive. I was living it. I could see it in my imagination, just like everything that was, that was happening. Crowded streets and Jesus stumbling and blood and, and dust and and then there's his nails hammered into his hands and feet. And like the emotions are just building up inside of me, you know, as I'm listening to this story of Jesus. And then finally, the preacher describes this scene of Jesus being lifted up on a wooden cross between two thieves. And some are mocking him, some are mourning him, but darkness envelops them all, and then Jesus, the Son of God, dies. And then, somewhat quietly, this preacher, he comes out from behind the pulpit, and he stands down on the ground, reaches into the silver tray, and pulls out a little square of bread. And he says, this bread represents Jesus' body. And then he, then he takes the, the little cup with juice in it that was inside of these trays, and he says, this cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for you because he loves you. <laughs> and from that moment on, these common things, this cup and these little crackers of bread, have really, really meant something to me. They've really, really had a meaning, powerfully representing the truth that my life is actually based on, that Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to give his body and his blood out of love for me. So I want to ask you this morning, 
What was your first experience with the Lord's Supper? Can you go back in your mind and remember it? Maybe it was like that, and you saw that. Or, or maybe you, you're wondering, you know, I don't know what you guys are talking about. What's the big deal, right? It's just some grape juice and a little cracker. Um, maybe perhaps you come from another church tradition, and you've wondered, okay, the way I grew up was a little bit different. Why do you guys celebrate the Lord's Supper the way you do here at the crossing? Well, if, uh, if you have any of those questions, uh, today's for you, because we're going to do a deep dive, ever wonder about the Lord's Supper. I want to try this morning to answer three questions, okay? The first question is this, just what is the Lord's Supper? Second, we're going to try to answer this. Why is the Lord's Supper significant in the life of a follower of Jesus? And then finally, we're going to answer this. Why do we here at the crossing observe the Lord's Supper? Why do we do it the way that we do it? So if you have your note sheet and you have your Bible, you might want to take them out because we are going to jump in. All right, let's deal with that first question right off the bat. What is the Lord's Supper? Okay, if you're thinking... Just the name kind of gives it away, right? Who's the Lord? Come on, help me out, guys. Who's the Lord? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, and then the supper is the last meal that he shared together with his closest friends before he went and gave his life on the cross. So when we say the Lord's Supper, we're talking about this meal that Jesus shared with these people. This meal is mentioned in all four of the Gospels and also in... uh, 1 Corinthians, where Paul is also writing about this night and talking to a church in Greece. So in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 13, and 1 Corinthians 11, we're all looking at different pictures of the same happening, this meal that Jesus shared with his friends. We're going to read it to begin with out of Mark chapter 14. Let's check it out. Mark 14. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my, what does it say? This is my body. goes on to say this. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my, please say it, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So right from the very beginning of this reading of the Lord's Supper in Mark, we notice that there are two components of this meal that are very, very important. What are they, you guys? Yeah, the bread and the cup. That's there in in the story. And for each item, the bread and the cup, Jesus assigned very special meaning. Um, The bread and the cup are the two enduring concepts that we still observe in the Lord's Supper. You might want to write that down in your notes. The bread and the cup, the two enduring concepts that we still observe in the Lord's Supper. Now, our movement, Foursquare, defines the Lord's Supper as a commemoration. How many of you know that word, commemoration? You ever heard that word before? Let's just define it for just a quick second. Commemoration is a remembrance typically expressed in a ceremony. So when we say we're going to have a commemoration, we're going to remember something, and we're going to do it in some sort of uh, ceremonial way. That's what a commemoration is. The Foursquare doctrinal statement actually reads like this. We believe in the commemoration and observing of the Lord's Supper, listen, by the sacred use of the broken bread, a precious type of the bread of life, even Jesus Christ, whose body was broken for us, and by the juice of the vine, a blessed type which should ever remind the participant of the shed blood of the Savior, who is the true vine of which his children are the branches. So if I could make that a little bit simple for all of us, we believe that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance ceremony using bread 
and juice to symbolize the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That's the simplest way to break it down. That's, that's, that's what we would say. A remembrance of Jesus involving bread and juice to symbolize his body and his blood. But I don't know about you. I want to know more. And I've wondered, why has it been so important for the people of God, the followers of Jesus, to continue to observe this commemoration for over 2,000 years since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. How many of you ever wondered why it's so significant in the life of a follower of Jesus? Let's dig into it. This is our second question. Why is the Lord's Supper so significant in the life of a follower of Jesus? There's a Bible scholar. His name is W.W. Criswell. He and many, many others have written specifically about salvation and how Jesus has worked to reach us and rescue us. And what they have called this story is a scarlet thread. All right? So I want to share with you guys a little bit of an illustration that can hope make uh, this come to life for all of us. I'm just going to stretch out this uh, scarlet thread here. And we're going to look at this scarlet thread as kind of the timeline of all of history, okay? From the very beginning of creation, way back here, to the end of time, which we really don't know much about, all right? Chriswell and others have called all of history a scarlet thread that links everything to the person of Jesus, what he did for us at the cross and his resurrection. Actually, I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says that Jesus is the dictionary in which we look up the very meaning of our words. Like, because we follow Jesus, everything is defined and we see everything through the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus is how we even look at life. And that's the scarlet thread that runs through all of, of history. So I want you to, in your mind, just go with me in your, in your mental time machines all the way back to the beginning of time. In the beginning, God creates the universe and the world and everything in it, and he, and he makes man. And he puts Adam and Eve in a garden, and they share wonderful fellowship. But you guys know what happens, right? There, uh, there was a voice there that spoke lies to Adam and Eve, and it ruined everything. Help me out there, Josh. Thank you. Because Satan came and, and told them a lie that they believed, and because they believed it, they lost fellowship with God. It was broken. And there, they tried to hide from God. They took some fig leaves to try to cover up the fact that they were, you know, ashamed. And God, at that moment, killed an animal, shed the animal's blood, and took the skins and actually covered Adam and Eve, made them clothes. And that blood that was shed at the very beginning of humanity was to cover their sins was to bring forgiveness about for what they had done. And Hebrews gives us this insight into that shedding of blood. It says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness of sins unless there's blood shed. And that was set up from the very, very beginning. Well, if you'll slide forward on the timeline of history, you'll have that wonderful story in Genesis chapter 22 of Abraham and his son Isaac. God says to Abraham, I need you to take your son, take him up on a mountain, and sacrifice him there. And they're getting ready to go do this. You see the picture? Isaac's carrying the wood, and Isaac says to his dad as they're making their way up, he says, Father, yes, son, we've got the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? It's like, 
It's going to be him. But Abraham says this, and, I, and it's so cool what he says. Abraham says, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And then they both walk on together. You see, you see even at, at this point, things down the story of history are starting to look forward and foretell what's going to happen with Jesus later on at the cross. Nod your head if you're still with me. Yeah. And so what happens? Abraham draws out the knife. He's going to kill his son. And right in that moment, they hear a ram in the thicket. And God says, don't lay your hand on the boy. Here's, here's the sacrifice. And Abraham says something that is so prophetic. He says, he named the place Yahweh Yirah, which means the Lord will what? Provide. The Lord will provide. What do you think Abraham was prophesying right here at this moment? He was talking about Jesus going to provide a sacrifice for our, our sins all those years into the future. It's a pretty amazing thing to see that Jesus is represented through all of our history. Um, then, down the timeline some more. The people of God are in slavery. And they're in Egypt. You know that story, right? Um, they're having to work as slaves. And God sends Moses to deliver them. And there's nine plagues. And on the tenth, they're going to be set free. And this is what God instructs his people to do in Exodus chapter 12. Let's read it. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a what? Hmm. A young goat for sacrifice. One animal for each household. I'll skip down a couple of verses. This is um, now in Exodus 12, verse 6. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. This is, again, blood being shed for, for a special circumstance. It says in verse 7, they're to take some of that blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the house where they eat the animal. This is how they're supposed to observe this special night. Then it says in verse 12, on that night I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. Verse 13, but the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign. Making the houses where you are, marking the houses where you're staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land. Here in Egypt, long before the cross, we see that blood was shed. And when blood was shed and the Lord saw that sacrifice, he would pardon people. And they wouldn't have to receive the punishment that was coming. Do you see how that points down history toward Jesus? Pretty amazing. Wasn't um, long after that that um, the prophet Isaiah would write about this lamb. He would say this. He was oppressed, treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a, there it is again, lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. In Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5, it says this. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. What is the prophet Isaiah down here on the scarlet thread of history talking about? He's talking about what Jesus would do for you and me. Isn't that cool? Like he, he, He's looking forward to what Jesus would do for us. And then it happened. The angel Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary and announced that Jesus would be born. And we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became human and made His home among us. 
He was full of love and faithfulness, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And that man, Jesus, grew up, and then one day he came to a place where there were some baptisms going on. You guys know that story. And his cousin, John the Baptist, baptized Jesus, and here's what he said. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. From the very beginning, an animal was slaughtered, and, and then it was Abraham, and, and then it was Moses, and then prophesied. And now, here he is, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. So amazing. And then, you guys, we go to that moment that we just read about. Right here on the timeline, right before the night when he's going to be crucified, they gather together. And we've already read it from Mark, but Luke 22 says it this way. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup, and he says, this cup is a new covenant. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And right here, at that moment, Jesus connects all of history into what is about to be done the next day at the cross. I want you to write this down in your, in your notes. It's pretty, pretty powerful. The Lord's Supper connects all the dots along the scarlet thread of redemption history. It brings it all together. It makes sense. What's the significance of the Lord's Supper? Well, it's here that it all comes together. It's been symbolized and set up for millennia and all through the centuries. And now at the cross, it's explained. The Lord's table is historically significant because it's Jesus tying together all of the salvation story. And when he says, this is my body and this wine is my blood, everything makes sense, right? It's for us. It's a pretty significant moment. Pretty important important remembrance. And so when we receive the Lord's Supper, it's significant because it's the story of everything. It's the story of the centrality of Jesus to our reality. And it's the significance of Jesus' cross, his sacrificial death for you and me. Which kind of brings us then to our last question why do we observe the Lord's Supper here at the crossing? Well, from this moment on, all throughout history to where we are now and then out into the future, should the Lord not return anytime soon, we have been obeying Jesus' words to do this, and his followers have, um, how shall we say it, disagreed on how to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So for just a few minutes, we're going to talk about why specifically we observe the Lord's Supper here at our crossing, in our loving community, in our mina, you know? I want to give you two main ways that we observe the Lord's Supper here at the crossing. The first, and you might want to write this down in your notes, is we observe the Lord's Supper here at the crossing as a designed memorial. Designed memorial. Because as Jesus is holding this bread in his hands in that room, and he says, do this in remembrance of me, we take that to be a command that we should follow. He said, do this. So we will do this, right? And then Paul takes up this uh, in his letter to 1 Corinthians, and I want to read this. It's very similar to what we've read before, but this is, again, after Jesus' cross and resurrection, Paul is speaking now to the people that are observing the Lord's Supper as the early church begins to grow. And he says, I'm passing on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Everybody read this for me. Here we go. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said for us to do it. 
In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And then he adds this. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Every time you do it, you are remembering Jesus and what he's done. And guys, in just a few minutes, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. You're going to get a little piece of bread and a, and a little cup with some juice in it. But I want to remind you that when you do that, you are participating in something that Jesus himself set up and wants his followers to continue to do. Are you still with me? Yeah. Also, I want to remind you that most, most uh, statistics say that you are not only just having this remembrance of Jesus here in our little church, but you're joining with some three billion other believers who are alive and following Jesus today who are also remembering Jesus by taking bread and a cup. That's pretty awesome. How that the body and the bread, or the body that is the bread and the, the blood that we symbolize in the cup, how that brings together all the followers of Jesus. Together with baptism, the Lord's Supper is one of the few things that all followers of Jesus have in common. Something we do, and we all do. So in these years, right after the cross, following Jesus' ascension, I just want to talk about that time period for a little bit. The early church celebrated the Lord's Supper as Jesus had asked them to do it um, every day. Acts chapter 2 says they, they got together, they shared a meal, and they partook of the Lord's Supper. And possibly it was during this time that um, the Lord's Supper was also connected with a meal. And of course that kind of looks back to the meal that the people of Israel had, right? As they shared that together, the Passover meal. So quite, quite possibly they were having a full meal in someone's home, sitting down together, enjoying fellowship of people who know Jesus. And at some point, they're taking some bread and remembering his, bread, his body. They're taking a cup and remembering his blood. So they're doing both. Sounds a lot like a circle to me. You know what I mean? Like hanging out at somebody's house and sharing a meal together and remembering Jesus. So that's what was happening early on. They called this the love feast. I think that's an awesome name, right? A love feast or an agape meal, maybe. And, and through the first couple hundred years, that was the, the standard practice. In fact, um, this meal brought people together in a really special way. An early church historian said that the Lord's Supper, observing the Lord's Supper together, helped the followers of Jesus forget all their distinctions of rank, wealth, and culture. It was so unifying. Because they, they believed together and they remembered Jesus and it unified the followers of Jesus. And there was early church fathers such as Cyprian and Chrysostom, who these people lived in the 300s A.D. They both record in their writings that the people of Jesus were observing the Lord's Supper every day back then. Augustine, who was also from this time period, he tells a little bit different story. He reports out to history that the followers of Jesus were um, varied in the way that they observed the Lord's Supper. From place to place, it would be different. Some would observe it daily. Some would observe it weekly. Others at various times. There's really no set pattern. And what Augustine adds is this. The important thing is not how often you do it or when you do it, but what Jesus said, as often as you do it. Remember Jesus. And, uh, of course... If you know your scripture in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has to deal with some problems. Because what was happening when these guys would get together eating a meal, the rich folks would bring lots of fancy food and they would gorge out on it and it would be awesome. And then the poor were being forgotten. And it actually led to mistreatment. And Paul had to say to them, hey guys, don't take what is supposed to be sacred and holy and, and treat it so uh, disrespectful. And he gave them some really harsh language. 
But kind of from, from, from about 300 to 400 A.D., followers of Jesus began to kind of part ways between the full meal that people were sitting around enjoying together and the ceremony involving just a bread and a cup. And actually, throughout church history, from about three 400, the followers of Jesus have really dialed in on the bread and the cup. And that has pretty much been the practice. And um, I wonder, out loud to you guys, I wonder if it's uh, not a great thing that we separated fellowship and hanging out together in love from observing, you know, the elements of Jesus. Just as something to consider. One historian, Philip Schaff, said this, this moment when they parted the the celebration of the meal together in homes and kind of maybe made it more formalized as just a ceremony, that thing was a development that took the simple feast of the Savior's dying love and transformed it into the cause of the most bitter disputes and theological controversies. Yeah, because like ever since then, people of God have been fighting and arguing about the Lord's Supper. There's like, hey, um... Is it supposed to be leavened bread or unleavened bread? Um, do you use wine or grape juice? Are you supposed to stand when you take it? Or are you supposed to sit? Do you kneel? What are you supposed to do when you do it? How, who gives it? Who doesn't get to get it? All these questions and literally hundreds more questions became like points of division for the followers of Jesus. And this, I love it. This is an amazing field of study. You guys should all dig into this. It's so, so cool. But can I tell you, if you look into this history, it's going to take you into some pretty weird places. Because we have had some really interesting beliefs about this table, about the bread and the cup. But can I just say for us here at the crossing, we're trying to grow and our understanding of following the example and the command of Jesus. And we have respect for our traditions, and we have respect for our movement's doctrinal position. But what our heart is, is that we want to try to follow exactly what Jesus said in the Scriptures. What, is this, what do the Scriptures seem to emphasize? That's what we want to do in practice. What is Jesus talking about in the Scriptures? That's what we want to try to zone in on. And in all of these passages that we've read, from the Gospel and from the Apostle Paul, what seems to consistently be in all of those passages is bread, cup, remembering. Always the bread, always the cup, always to remember. So why do we take the bread and the cup here at the crossing? We do it to remember. It's a designed memorial. I hope you've written that down. A designed memorial. We do it to honor the sacrifice that the Lamb of God has given for the sins of the world. We partake of the bread and the cup because we stand on the truth and believe that what Jesus did works. It's effective. It takes care of it for me. I love that. You know, uh, Jen and I uh, have this practice when our kids are um, have a birthday. She always sits them down and goes through the circumstances around their birth, like tells them the whole story. Like, this is when I went into labor. This is what I was saying. This is what your dad was saying. This is what the doctor said. This is how you were born. You look this way. We had to do this. She does that for every child, every birthday. Why do we do that? So they'll remember. We rehearse it again and again because that's the important stuff, right? And so why do we observe the Lord's Supper here at the crossing? Because we believe it's so important that we want to keep it in front of us over and over again. A designed memorial. And when we do that, we every time we do it, we're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. But friends, can I also add to that thought that in addition to being a designed memorial, we experience, when we observe the Lord's Supper, 
an invitation to receive. An invitation to receive. Can I just suggest to his friends that the Lord's Supper might be perhaps more than just a historical significant memory? It could be more even than a design memorial. When we here at the crossing observe the Lord's Supper, we are actually responding to an invitation that Jesus has given us to receive him. Go with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is a really amazing uh, chapter. It talks about the feeding of the, uh, the 5,000 just before, and then Jesus is uh, walking on the water, and then uh, the next day, all the people are back, and they're wanting to be fed again. And this is what the people say. They say, hey, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. <laughs> what can you do? I love that. They just ate a meal that he multiplied, but what can you do today? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Here's what Jesus does. I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. What's Jesus talking about? Himself. Yeah, he's talking about himself. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's Jesus. It's me. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. <laughs> well, we want it. Let's have it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Do you hear the invitation of Jesus? If you can receive this bread of life, you'll never be hungry again. You won't lack. If you can, if you can receive this blood that I'm shedding for your sins, you'll never, ever be thirsty again. I love what Jesus is saying here. Down in verse 47, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me has eternal life. Yes, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. It's like those guys had bread, but it wasn't the kind of bread I'm talking about. Because anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. Never die. And then Jesus says it this way, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread, his body, will live forever. And this bread which I offer so that the world may live is my flesh. Wait, wait a second. His, his body, his flesh, right? Jesus says, those people that eat my flesh will, will live forever. This is, this is amazing. Down in verse 53, it's like the people got tripped up at that. They're like, wait a minute, is he talking about Cannibalism in some weird way? Like, what, what is this? Eat your flesh. They were freaking out. But Jesus didn't stop to explain it. And he didn't say, really, no, what I really mean. No, he just kind of doubled down and said more. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. Can't have it. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Remember Jesus, the night before he was taken to the cross, he told his disciples, you guys, remain in me, and I will remain in you. And if you remain in me, you'll, gain, you'll have much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. You've got to stay with me. And then he, he, he says here in John 6, those people that consume me and eat my flesh and drink my blood, receive me, they are the ones who remain with me and I in them. I live because of the, because of the living Father who has sent me in the same way. I love this. Anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. Can you see this? 
this line, anyone who feeds on me. Anyone who feeds on me. Those are challenging verses of Scripture. But I would just offer to you, I personally believe that what Jesus is talking about here is receiving him. Anyone who feeds on me. He's talking about completely going all in and consuming Jesus. Like who he is and what he's all about. His ways, his way for living, his command, all of it. I'm just taking it all in. I'm consuming. I'm living off of it. He's saying, guys, you've got to consume me. You've got you to go all in with me. I am what you need the most, but you've got to eat it, man. You've got to drink it. You've got to really let it enter you. Are you still with me? You've got to let it enter you. I believe that John 6, 50, 56 and 57, where, where Jesus is talking about this, explains what he means when he says eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He says, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood stays with me. So in the receiving of the bread and the receiving of the cup, I have the opportunity to stay with Jesus, connect with him, receive him. And from the discussions that he's having here on the shore of Galilee, to the moment that they're around the table, don't you know that when Jesus held that bread in his hand and he said, this is my body, some of those disciples go, way, he, he said, you've got to eat his body. Ah, this is what it means. In the, in the receiving of the bread, in the drinking of this cup, which symbolizes his blood, I'm going to do what he was talking about back there on the seashore. When he held that bread in his hand, it made sense. And then, guys, we will have the opportunity to do the exact same here this morning. To receive Jesus, to go all in, to consume him, to take him in and receive everything that he has for us. Uh, I want to tell you about a recent trip that I had um, in Vietnam. It was so awesome. We experienced a lot of believers that were following Jesus. and It was so cool. We had an opportunity to travel up river by a boat, and we're going through this really tight river and jungle, and then there's a clearing and a, and a dock. We all get out of the boat, climb up these stairs into a, on a steep bank, and underneath the thatched roof there on the side of the river was like this uh, rough wooden table with some stools. And on this table, there was spread out this amazing spread. It's like fruit that I didn't recognize, and some bread, and all that stuff, and it's all there, and my, my friends and I, we all sat down, you know, to eat lunch together, and the setting was beautiful, it was amazing, the conversation was great, and then it really all changed, because it all changed for me when this uh, tiny little waitress person brought to the table this. Yeah, that's what I said. It was a fish, right, that they just caught in the river a few moments ago. And it brought it to the deep fryer and just dropped it in and then brought it to the table. I mean, you can see it's like scales, fins, guts, little eyeballs looking at you, the whole thing, right? And, and to be honest, like, I'm a picky eater, right? I am. I'm sorry. Y'all can work on fixing me, but I'm a picky eater. And it's like a lifetime character flaw that I haven't been able to overcome. And so I'm looking at this fish, right? And I'm going, oh man, how am I, how am I going to do this? You know, it's got scales, there's going to be bones in there. What am I going to do with the eyes? You know, so I do what anybody does. He takes a fork and I just start picking at it. You know what I mean? You pick at it, you knock some of it off, you stir it around a little bit, you take it off the little stand put some of the lettuce up on top of it, maybe put a little bit underneath the plate, because I really don't want the people that brought it to think I'm being rude, you know, but I just don't know that I want that. I maybe take like a little bite, it's a tiny little bite, um, but I do not fully eat this fish. You get it? I don't. I, never, I mean, it may look like I ate the fish, but I did not eat that fish. 
This is what we sometimes do when we come to the Lord's table, right? The table is Jesus' grand invitation to receive Him, to, to consume Him, to, to receive His body and His blood, to receive the bread of life that actually will sustain us through everything. And, and what do we do? We kind of generally pick at it, take a little bit of that, take a little bit of this. We choose what we will receive and what we will believe and what we're going to leave off. We don't want to be rude, and we don't want anybody else in the room to think that we don't want Jesus and all that stuff, but we don't really let it enter us. We're not eating his flesh. We're not drinking his blood. And the simplest way that I can say it to us this morning is this. Jesus wants to be your everything. He wants to be your sustenance, your bread of life. Our hearts and our minds completely depending on Him, or I would say living off of Him. Our lives drawing strength and everything we need from Him and Him alone. That's the invitation that we have to receive Jesus this morning. And so I want to ask you today, just a few moments, we're going to receive and observe the Lord's Supper together. Will you join me in participating in this designed memorial, a commemoration of what Jesus has done for us? And also, would you receive him personally? Take him in all the way. Maybe, maybe you never have before. Or there's places in your life that he's dealing with you this morning to take another step. Will you receive him all the way today? Why don't you bow your heads with me across this room? I'd like to ask you just to introspectively look in your own heart and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Come, Holy Spirit. This is a precious moment. We know your presence is here, but I ask, oh Lord, that you wake us up to the realness of your presence here, to this sacred moment where we will remember your body broken, your blood shed for us, where we will receive you in our lives in complete and total belief. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Could I ask you, Crossing Friends, to um, make your way to one of these tables. There's two in the front, one in the back. Could you do it quietly and reverently? Please take a piece of bread and a cup and then make your way back to your seat. I want to remind you that here at the crossing, we believe that if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to remember what he's done for you, that you can participate in the Lord's Supper. So everyone is welcome. Thank you, guys. You'll just take a piece of bread and a cup, maybe go back to your seat. And could I ask you to, once you've got your cup and your bread, maybe just hold it there in your hands in quiet reflection. While you're holding that bread, can you think about the body of Jesus? Let the Lord just take your mind into that space where you remember what what happened to Jesus' body for you? Can you remember the blood shed, the, the scarlet thread throughout salvation's story, always about the blood, always pointing to what Jesus would do, and it was all for you? Would you, would you just meditate on that as all are being served? encourage you to think on the cross and what Jesus has done for you. If you have young kids with you, it's so appropriate for parents to share with them what's going on and just walk them through it. 
Would you just continue to think on Christ's body and his blood? As the final people are being served, just want to encourage you there while you hold the bread and while you hold the cup, maybe take a forward step in your life and in your relationship with God and just offer maybe even the quiet prayer of thanksgiving. That prayer might go something like this. I thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life for me. While you're holding that bread and that cup, I thank you, Lord, that your blood was shed for me very grateful. My life's so different because you let your body be broken. You let your blood be shed for my soul, for my forgiveness. Just thank him for that. I thank you, Lord. So overwhelmed by how kind and how gracious your mercy is and how you've reached to me. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Now with both the bread and the cup in your hands, can we stand together all across the room? If you can, stand. We read it from the different passages today. But Jesus took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you partake the bread together? And he also took a cup. He said, this is a new covenant, a new agreement sealed with my blood. Drink it and do this in remembrance of me. Can we all drink the cup together? Every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and worship him together. Thank you.